Not a bad idea. Amen. Amen. Here we go. Get the party started early. How's everybody doing? Merry Christmas, right? We good? We're good. We are good. I hope everybody had a great Christmas. We had perhaps what I would probably categorize as the most laid-back. Howdy, bud. We had what probably I would categorize the most laid-back Christmas, probably since we've been married, I would say. It was just casual from start to finish, um, and uh, we had a great time. It was just actually just Tammy and I and uh, Morgan home all day. And, uh, yeah, I had a great time. We'll have a family dinner, a bigger family dinner this afternoon. But um, <coughs> mom's getting fired up already. She's got this long, slow burn that kind of gets top out this afternoon about 4 o'clock, and then she'll hit the easy chair, and that will be that. <laughs> hey, uh, we are, we've been uh, actually in First Corinthians um, for the last quite a few months, and uh, last week we kind of veered away from that and uh, looked at Luke chapter 2, and uh, <clears throat> I've been kind of um, studying through and through this holiday season, reading through the gospel accounts, all four of them actually, but only two of them really give the, the uh, birth of Christ uh, story. I was really intrigued by where we're going to go today out of Matthew chapter 2. I don't often, I can actually, this is kind of weird, but I don't really start with like a title to the sermon. In fact, oftentimes there'll be other people who are like, what's the title of your sermon? I said, I really don't know. Put whatever you want to put on it. That's just what God had for me. But actually, um, I do have a title to this one, and uh, it's kind of a ready, set, go type of a sermon. Throughout the ages, God's people have been called uh, to be, if nothing else, God's people have been called to be light on their feet. To be light on their feet. Now, <clears throat> I get it that a lot of the Old, Test- Old Testament narrative was about getting to the promised land, settling the promised land, you know, taking dominion over the promised land and, you know, taking it back from the enemy. That All of that goes with that, it's more than just a spiritual reality it was a physical reality for them I I understand that Uh, but they went when they were commanded to go and as I said I've been reading through these gospel accounts God's people have uh, been called to be these things portable flexible and ready to go at his command that's the that's really the 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 starting blocks in the story of the exodus out of Egypt is they were to be, to be ready to go. They were to be portable, they were to be flexible, they were to be ready to go at his command. Three such examples are discovered here in the Gospel of Matthew that we're going to look at. And two of those examples involved a young Israeli man and his young pregnant bride-to-be. The other example is perhaps a little bit more mysterious. Several wise men from the east... Uh, these wise men were cunning and crafty in their geopolitics of the day. They're coming to give these gifts and to the now infant Jesus, so sometime after he was born. 
And despite the differences in the nationality and the heritage and the culture, there's a common trait that they have uh, together there. They move when God says to move, and they stay when God says to stay. This last year, we went through the Experiencing God study by the Blackabees, and one of the things that's emphasized in that study is this idea, is find what God is doing and join Him there. Like wherever you are, whatever is going on, look around, see where God is, is energizing, see where God is, is moving, see where God is touching people, see what's happening, and then just jump in and get involved. And sometimes, and a lot of times, I believe that that means that we have to be, as, as Christ followers, we have to be light on our feet. We have to be portable, we have to be quick, we have to be on the ready in that way. <clears throat> and that's what we see here in this post-birth account in the Gospel of Matthew. Various people that God selected, people that were looking to serve Him, worship Him. And we see, uh, actually in the storyline here in Matthew 2, there's one figure that wasn't. One person in this account that was all about himself. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 2 for today, and we're going to get into 1 Corinthians chapter 13 uh, next week, but we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2 today. Matthew chapter 2, I'll just go ahead and read it. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Les read this account, Christmas Eve and the Christmas Eve story. He read Matthew chapter 1 and then on into this far into chapter 2. And verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, Where is the Christ, <coughs> where the Christ was to be born? So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are you not the least of the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring him Bring back word to me that I might come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding, exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him of gold and frankincense and myrrh. <clears throat> then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed from e for Egypt, and there was, <clears throat> and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet, saying, "Out of Egypt, I called my son." 
Then Herod, when he saw he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all of its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had been determined from the wise men. Then, <clears throat> then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when they heard, <clears throat> now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. <clears throat> then he arose and took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Achaerus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he should be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that's going on in this intriguing story here that Matthew wrote down for us. Uh, the fine details, the big story line, the subplots, the whole thing, Father, we thank you uh, for how you moved in people's hearts as they sought you and as they, they, uh, they sought to worship you and to give you glory and to be obedient to what you had given them for knowledge and wisdom and understanding. So we praise you. Let us learn from it this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing, uh, back to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Uh, just a few points as we get rolling this morning is um, these wise men serve as a great example for us to follow. They serve in this example uh, that we should know the times like they did. We should know the seasons like the, they did. And that we should understand kind of the movements of God in the times that we live in. Uh, we were appointed, the, the Bible says, we were appointed to live in this time. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't a, a, a random you know, collision of events. And boom, you're here and you're sitting in a seat in you know, 2021 right at the end of the year. That's not by random chance. It's not by random chance at all. You were appointed, I was appointed, we were all appointed. These wise men were appointed to live in the days and times uh, that, were, that are for them and those that are for dates and times that are for us. And so know the times, the seasons, and the movements of God. That's one of the things that will help us uh, as Christ followers to be portable to be flexible, to be ready to go, is to know the times and the seasons and the movements of God. There's a connection to Old Testament prophecy here uh, under knowing these times and seasons. The traditions, the knowledge, and the education of the Magi dates back to the Jewish exile, Jewish exile in the times of Daniel. Les spoke about this a little bit Friday night. Daniel stood out among the people that were there, that were, that were taken away in captivity. Daniel stood out amongst all of those, both in his own heritage, in his Jewish heritage, but also all of those in Babylon as a man that was wise, a man that understood the times and the seasons and the movements of God, a person that uh, 
desired knowledge and wisdom from God. There's really kind of two passages as I read through the actually the whole book of Daniel. It's only 12 chapters. It's a, it's a fascinating read. I'd encourage you to, uh, to do so, especially this time of the year. But there's two passages here where it really exposes Daniel's love of learning uh, and love of knowledge and wisdom from the Lord. The first one's in Daniel chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. And the passage here is speaking of Daniel and his Jewish friends as they've kind of been tested uh, to not eat anything that was unclean. That's kind of the, the context of the passage here in chapter 1. And it says this, "...and all the matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them..." So there was a bit of a test here for Daniel and his friends. "...all the matters of which the wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were, <clears throat> who were in all of his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus." So he was tenfold better than anybody else in the land. That's essentially what is being recorded here. He, he loved the knowledge and wisdom that God was sharing with him, that God had uh, put forth to Daniel. Of course, if you know a lot about Daniel, the, later, the further it goes in the storyline of the book of Daniel, the fur, further he's talking about and God is revealing to Daniel the things that are going to happen at the end of days, the Bible says. And so that's part of the reason why I think it's a great read. One, you see this Jewish teenager uh, who stands out, and as the book goes along, it gets more intense in the things that God's showing him, and so does his ability to stand out in godly wisdom. The second verse that really confirms Daniel's love of learning is found in Daniel chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. This is after kind of a, what I was just sharing about, a, a uh, prophetic word from the Lord for Daniel about the things that are going to happen in the end of days. It says this in verse 9, And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the, <clears throat> for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But the, eyes, but the wise shall understand. The implication there is that Daniel and those who seek godly wisdom will find it and live by it. And part of finding godly wisdom is finding this idea that we have to be light on our feet. That we have to be light on our feet as believers. We have to be ready to go. We have to be ready to answer the call of God, whatever it shall be. The other part about knowing the times and the seasons and the connection here to the wise men was that there was actually a historical documentation from that Roman era that was confirmation that these things were, were the big thing that was happening in that day that when Jesus was born, when Jesus was a toddler. There's a couple of Roman historians that have wrote about it exclusively. I'll probably butcher the guy's name, but the Roman historian uh, Suetonus wrote, there had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Tactus, another Roman historian of the general period, wrote also, he says, there's a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful and the rulers coming <clears throat> and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire. 
So there was at the time that, that this is why uh, in Galatians 4 it says, when, when the time was right, when the time was right, Paul tells the Galatians, Mary gave forth to a, to a son. The time was right because all over the known world, from the Middle East to the Far East, there was this understanding, there was this buzz, there was this talk that out of Judea would come a king. It wasn't just something that was, you know, pushed away to the back of the Old Testament and a prophecy that was obscure, not in any way. It was something that was really being talked about. It was the big word. If it was today, it would be on the nightly news all the time. Uh, At least maybe some nightly news. As Christians, we need to know the times and the seasons that we live in. And we need to know God's wisdom and understanding and how to operate in those times. How to operate in the time that we live in here. Sometimes, as in the case with the wise men, it becomes a culmination of a life study. Their trek, and and let's refer to them Friday night as kingmakers. They weren't kings. We sing the song, We Three Kings. Likely they weren't kings. Uh, there's uh, quite, a, quite a study that, that re- regards to these, uh, that, that notes these guys as king makers. They were so influential. They didn't rule territory and countries, but they were influential in, in setting up who was and endorsing who was the rulers of the day. And so he uses the phrase king makers. In the case of these guys, their trek through the Middle East to find themselves in Bethlehem really was the culmination of their life study. They were the, they were the downstream uh, educated guys that were left over from Daniel's uh, desire that people in Babylon would have godly wisdom. That people in Babylon would, would understand the times and the seasons. Daniel passed that knowledge down. These guys are down the lineage quite a ways in that study but they had this global influence yet their greatest account the greatest account of these three wise men in all of history was that they traveled this great distance to worship a young Jewish toddler the savior of the world isn't that insane isn't that crazy like if you could put you know Bill Gates you know Jeff Bezos Who's the other guy? Zucker something? Elon Musk and Zuckerberg. If you could put them, you know, if you could put them in a van, of course, you know, these guys all have these massively inflated egos, so it'd be interesting to see how that went. But if you could put them in a van to travel a thousand miles for the purpose of bowing down and worshiping a Jewish toddler. What's the possibilities that would happen tomorrow? Pretty slim. But that's exactly what happened in Jesus' day. That's kind of the comparative, you know, that we have to work with for Jesus' day. These kingmakers, these wise men, these guys that understood the times and the seasons that they lived in, that saw what was going on uh, beyond just the natural, saw what was going on in the supernatural, understood astrology, all the all that you know goes or astronomy, all that goes with all of that. Right? Astronomy, not astrology. 
Make sure I get my words right. They understood what was going on, so they loaded up and went. And it must have been the most bizarre occurrence to see this massive caravan of influential people, the, perhaps the most influential people in the world that weren't Roman, come and worship this little toddler. All because they had studied. They'd studied with the, uh, in the uh, likeness of the prophet Daniel. And they knew the times and the seasons. That's what helped them be portable. The odd character in the story, odd only from the standpoint that he's one that doesn't come to worship, although that's his pretense, is actually this guy Herod. <clears throat> the second point I want to make today is God's going to deal with, uh, with uh, out-of-control leadership. God's going to deal with jealous leaders for the day. Like, that's something that we don't have to handle. God has a tendency to deal with that. The story of Herod, actually, that's History that's not recorded here in Matthew chapter 2 is actually pretty uh, ironic and interesting. But while reading through Matthew 2, I was reminded really of these two Proverbs that really kind of summarize Herod's style of leadership. Proverbs 28.16 says this, A ruler who lacks understanding is a great oppressor, but he who hates covetousness will prolong his days. Um, Herod and the story of Herod and his <clears throat> his leadership style and all that he did uh, really really highlights that he really fulfills that in a sense he really lives out that thing that he lacked understanding and was a great oppressor uh, he didn't hate covetousness and so his days were not prolonged they were actually shortened Proverbs twenty nine two says this when the righteous are in authority the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. There was a lot of groaning in Herod's days, the days that he led. There were two, a couple of great Proverbs I was thinking about in regard to Herod. There was a sense in the Roman Empire in these days, there were some aspects to it that were peaceful, unless brought some of these out on Friday. You'd think that I, you didn't know I was taking notes, did you? Right here. One of the things he brought out is you could travel with relative ease in the Roman Empire. They ruled with an iron fist, but they also created a, an empire that was essentially kind of peaceful in the sense there was, uh, you could travel. Uh, there was a mail system. You had Roman soldiers literally everywhere in the empire to keep the peace and to make it relatively safe for people. But for all the good that may have been done, the Roman leaders suffered from a common problem. Uh, all of them really, for the most part, suffered from this common issue. They were all incredibly paranoid people. These leaders were just scared to death of what might happen to upset their reign and rule. It was safer, they say, to be a slave of the emperor than to be a family member. Historical text record in Herod's 36-year reign was one of uh, a brutality and ruthless behavior. He had three sons murdered, and according to the passage here in Matthew that we just read, he ordered the slaughter of all the young boys in Bethlehem under the age of two in an attempt to just get to one. 
We're not sure. Bethlehem was not a huge town necessarily. But he was willing to basically just sacrifice them all just to get to one. That's pretty ruthless. That shows a lot of paranoia. That shows that uh, he was not uh, one. He was not one to be trifled with. But uh, he was literally trying to get to just one. He was trying to get to kill the infant Jesus. The little toddler Jesus was a threat. Actually, he was not an actual physical threat to Herod, but he was a perceived threat. Part of that is really brought out in the fact that in that day, so many people were talking about this coming leader out of Judea. So Herod was nervous. He was anxious. He was upset. He does two things here in the story of Matthew records in chapter 2. First, he turns to the religious experts, quote-unquote, the Jewish leaders who knew the scriptures but couldn't get outside of their own way long enough to see that prophecy was actually being fulfilled right in front of them. They remind me of this proverb, Proverb 29, 26. Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from the Lord. There was this unholy alliance between the Jewish leadership and the Roman leadership that kind of did an okay job at keeping the peace on one hand, on kind of a civil level. But what it did is it diluted the faith. It diluted the faith, and the longer it went, the further and further, and the more and more the Jewish leaders were more about pilfering money from the people rather than studying the scriptures like they were supposed to, although they did. I wouldn't say they didn't. But they were really, like I said, they couldn't get out of their own way long enough to see that prophecy was being fulfilled right in Bethlehem, right in front of them. The second thing that Herod did, Herod tries to enlist the help of the wise men under the ruse of worship, uh, and it doesn't work. He sent them to find this young Messiah, this one that was born king of the Jews, so that he could come and worship. Uh, He had no intention of worshiping Jesus because he was too busy worshiping himself. And so he wanted to use them in a way to get access to the location of where this young child was. God has a way of dealing with these unholy leaders there's a little fun fact here uh, before we get to that. There's two things um, that we should note, especially in the days that we live in, is that when someone, a leader or anybody else, sets out to kill the innocent under a false pretense of religious duty, uh, one, it's not a real good time for us to squabble over Romans 13 of who and how we should, <laughs> you know, deal with civil leadership. By then, it's pretty well off the rails. And two, God had this special vengeance in mind for King Herod. I read this out of an article that I was online doing a little research on Herod. From a 2002 article by Emma Young in the New Scientist, she quotes Jan Hirschman, a professor at medicine at the University of Washington, uh, who goes on to say that Herod died from a combination of chronic kidney disease and a rare infection that caused gangrene of the genitalia. How's that for irony in the story of Herod? Uh, Painful death 
of the worst possible kind. And all the guys are kind of giving the strange cringe as I read that. But that's, that, was Herod's, uh, that was Herod's end. He died, uh, I wouldn't say young, but he died in a pretty excruciating way. God has a way of dealing with these unholy rulers. On the other hand, there's the true believers in the story. The true believers, and they do these things, they hear the message, they make a provision, and then they get to work, verses 13 through, th- <clears throat> 13 through 26. Uh, this passage is about Joseph and Mary fleeing Israel to protect Jesus. It's one of uh, a lot of subplots in the Bible where God's people were quick to do these things, listen without argument or doubt, respond for the sake of another, move without all the details, and just, just literally pick up and go immediately, to pick up and go immediately. It must have been quite an interesting life for Joseph. Uh, you think about it, and uh, <clears throat> at the Christmas party at Josh and Shauna's this last week, Dennis shared a little bit of his uh, thoughts on Joseph and Mary, primarily on Joseph, that uh, what a life that was lived there, if we stop and think about. This guy was the caretaker of the Messiah. What a responsibility that must have been. What a uh, life that must have been. We don't know all the story. The Bible doesn't record all the story. We don't have much history, or any history really, on the later years and what happened after the fact, after the other kids were born, after they had married, and all that goes with that. But in this story, there's some amazing pieces that we can pull out of it. It must have been an amazing and interesting life that this fellow had to live to be the caretaker of the Savior of the world. Really can kind of be boiled down. Uh, the story of Joseph can be boiled down to three dreams. Kind of a three-act play or a three-dream play. The first dream is in Matthew 1, 20 through 21. I'll just read these for you. But here this scene plays out this way. Joseph gets a memo that God is at work inside of his problem. See, Joseph was, he, he was struggling, he was struggling with the fact that his betrothed wife was pregnant, and he says, says here in Matthew one twenty. but while he thought about these things, when he was trying to figure out what to do, whether to put her away quietly, how to handle it, how to uh, not, you know, essentially Joseph was trying to avoid Mary getting stoned to death. She shows up pregnant. He's thinking, now, now what? This is not part of the plan. This is not how it normally goes. And when things break this way for a couple in that day, it broke bad. It ended in a death. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take, <clears throat> to take uh, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the first act. He just simply responded and said, all right, let's do it. Those are my words, not his. But He just moved forward. He didn't have all the details, but he had enough details to walk in faith 
and follow out what God had shown him. The second dream, this, the second act in the play is Matthew 2, 13 through 14 that we read a bit ago where Joseph gets the memo to leave Israel for Jesus' protection. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word for Herod seeks to kill the young <clears throat> seeks to kill seeks the young child to destroy him when he arose he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt they were light on their feet joseph was light on his feet he didn't have all the details he had a destination and he had a reason why he needed to leave but he didn't have a lot more than that they just packed up whatever they had and they just boogied out of town he was light on his feet he had a role to play in that protector of the family. The third act, the third dream is a few verses later in Matthew 2, 19 through 21. Joseph got the third memo to return to Israel for, the, for Jesus' sake. Now when Herod, verse 19 says, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Um, Joseph kind of gives a whole new meaning to the phrase dream catcher. <laughs> he got it. He understood what God was doing. He didn't have all the details. He didn't have all the knowledge, all the components. They, they, had, they had left. They had boogied out of town uh, before Herod really started to get ramped up in, in anger, if you take the storyline in Matthew 2, literally, in a series of events. So they were already gone before Herod gives his big emphasized uh, edict. But Joseph ranks high on my personal list of heroes of the faith, even though he's not recorded in Hebrews chapter 11. The Bible labels him an upright man. But in this chapter, second chapter of Matthew, I see these attributes that go along with Joseph, Joseph's righteousness. Uh, he was a defender. He was responsible. He was brave. He was daring. He was obedient. He trusts the Lord. He was portable. In order to be portable, you need to be prepared at some level. So he was portable and he was prepared. He was cautious, yet he was discerning in how he carried out the affairs of his family, both in the coming and in the going. In the chapter 1 of saying, hey, I... I what do I do with this young lady that's supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to get married, now she's pregnant, what do I do? He's pondering these things. He didn't get in a rush. He didn't just take the, the socially acceptable route to toss Mary aside. That was what was socially acceptable. Hey, not me. I had nothing to do with it. And he would not have been lying. He didn't have anything to do with it. The socially acceptable route was just say, bah, move on. Right? No, he was patient. He was discerning. And God shows up and says, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. I did this. 
Just be steady. Move forward and be steady. And dream two, it's time to go. Herod wants to take him out. Uh, There's a type here that we find in the Bible of Herod being a type of uh, the enemy in a sense where Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. No doubt the Satan was working in Herod in the sense that he was trying to take out the Messiah before he really got going in any sort of fashion. So when he arose, it says in verse 14, he took the young child and his mother by night. They packed up. They grabbed the flashlight. They had their LED. They had their whatever they had to go, and they just left. Didn't stand around and ask a lot of questions. Didn't take a survey. They didn't call mom and dad to see what they thought, see how it would impact them, right? They didn't go to anybody. They just had a word from the Lord, and they responded to that word from the Lord. And it was the same way coming the other direction. There's an interesting, um, there's an interesting aspect of this that they say that all of the north and south traffic traveled essentially kind of from not completely, but essentially from Egypt straight up through Israel and through, you know, Bethlehem, Galilee, that whole area. And the east-west traffic kind of intersects there in that part of Israel. That's why some people believe that, in, that Israel is kind of the center of the world in that way. And in, in the ancient times, that was true. So there was all this north-south traffic, east-west traffic. They're right at the intersection, so to speak, and kind of use that terminology, they just jump on the southbound traffic, say, hey, we're out. We need to go. He had a duty to protect Jesus. He had a duty to protect Mary. He was trusting in what God was saying. He was obedient. We used to say, obey immediately. He obeyed immediately. As soon as he woke up, he said, all right, hey, let's pack a bag and let's get out of here. The same thing is true coming north. He jumped on the northbound traffic in Acts, in, in, excuse me, not in Acts, but in Matthew chapter 2, 19 through 21. So, all right, it's time to go. It does show that he was a bit fearful. It does show that uh, he was concerned when he come back north of, you know, who was in charge and, and why. And I didn't include those verses, so that's how they ended up in Nazareth. With all that being said, he was unwittingly fulfilling prophecy in the process of ending up in Nazareth. There's a psalm as we close, if the worship team wants to come on up. and There's a song that really reveals to me an attitude that Joseph displays here in Matthew chapter 2. A few verses out of Psalm 119, starting in verse 57, says this, You are my portion, O Lord. And I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. and Be merciful to me according to your word. I thought about my ways, and I turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. There's a kind of a a component that reminds me that, and I often wonder if Joseph was thinking about this particular psalm that you need to make haste at times and not delay to do what God says. 
Verse 61 says, The cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight I will rise and give thanks to you. In the middle of the night, Joseph had to scurry and get out of town because of your righteous judgments. The word that God had for Joseph in both coming and going and staying with Mary prior to all of that was God's righteous word, God's righteous judgment for the time that he was in to, to, put, <clears throat> to be a player to put Jesus on the scene that he was going to end up fulfilling later in life. It's the righteous judgments of God, his word coming in a dream. There's a lot of dreams that go on. Everybody gets a dream in this chapter, it seems like, except for Herod. Verse 63 says, I'm your companion. I am a companion of all who fear you and those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. So just a couple takeaways as we close today from Matthew 2. That we should know the times and the seasons, seasons and the movements of God like the wise men. We're called to that. We're called as Christ followers to examine the times and the seasons, the days that we live in, and follow the Lord accordingly in those. Uh, we should also know that God will deal with civil leadership that's run amok. That we don't have to force some change. We don't have to initiate or, or uh, <clears throat> we're not mandated in that sense uh, to make something happen. That God has a really a unique way of dealing with civil leadership that's run amok. We're called to follow the Lord. The third thing is just know that God calls us to hear the message, to prepare ourselves, and to simply get out of town. Just simply do what He's called us to do. Maybe it's not getting out of town. Maybe it's being right here. Whatever God has called us to do, that we should hear it, prepare for it, and, and initiate it and move forward. Whether it's around the world, we're going to be hearing in the, uh, in the coming weeks and Morgan's going to share here in uh, the first part of January uh, from what she's got going on in, in India, where God's called her to be. We're also going to hear from Trace and Taylor Brookover, who are home from the Middle East. And so they're going to be here towards the end of January. But I wanted to bring out this and kind of uh, and highlight the fact that we have some of our missionaries that are home that are going to share, because this is exactly kind of their storyline. But it's not just their storyline. Theirs might be somewhat unique in where they end up. But it's really all of our storylines as we follow Christ. That we should hear what God's saying. We should join Him in that work. Which means there's some preparation. Which means there's some learning that goes on. There may be some physical preparation. Whatever there is, there's always a sense of preparation. But then we should be light on our feet as Christ followers to then engage, to then just go, and then do it, and not live in fear, but live in faith. If Joseph, the reason why I think he should be in chapter 11 of Hebrews, and I didn't write it, and I'm not complaining about the author, I'm just simply saying Joseph really exhibits to me a man that very little is said about, but everything that's said about him says that he was operating by faith in his creator and playing his part fulfilling his role, doing what God has called him to do as a husband and a father, as a protector of the Savior of the world. Let's stand and sing.